fast. <laughs> you know, I'm just uh, so aware that this um, series is really something that God has used a team to bring forth. Um, I think of Brad Holloway and the initial conversation we had together. Brad was asking me if I would teach what I'm going to teach this morning. And the more we talked about it, the more it became this series. So really, without Brad, this wouldn't have happened. Um, I'm so thankful for Ryan Thurman for filling in for me last week. It's been wonderful to hear from some of you what um, a beneficial and enriching time that was. I'm so thankful for Megan. I mean, Megan initiated this recording, and now these recordings are on the website. And Jane Aldred uh, sent me an email. George, I just got an email from somebody in Istanbul, Turkey. It's listening to your messages. Do you know anybody in Istanbul, Turkey? <laughs> and, and so Jane and Bobby, Bobby has copied the notes for us, and Megan. And so Hannah... Hannah is the chief editor. So when I do the notes, first person to read them is Hannah. And then they get changed. <laughs> so it's a team. It's a team. It's a team. It's the beauty of God's people, God's church, with all of her diverse giftings and callings serving together. So I'm, I'm just very aware of that. So this morning we come to this subject of solitude. And again, this is the subject that Brad initially asked me if I would be available to teach on. And as we talked, I said to Brad, you know, this, issue, this area of solitude can come across a bit strong. And so it might be helpful to lay a context for it. Otherwise, we hear about being in solitude and we just say, well, that's not for me. Um, I've had people say to me, well, you know, George, you just are a contemplative type. And so that's why you talk about solitude. I do want to report that for the first time in my life, a couple of weeks ago, I took the Myers-Briggs Evaluation Survey. And according to Myers-Briggs, I'm an extrovert. <laughs> and so the person that's up here talking to you about solitude is actually an extrovert. And my own observation, both from the scriptures and from life, is that every human being is renewed in solitude. That's my own observation. And the foundation of that is we're created in the image of God. And God worked for six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And he told us that we were to do that. And we are made for that. You know, our cars are made to have oil in them. And they run really well when they have oil, but when the oil starts leaking out and gets lower and lower and lower, pretty soon we damage the car. Why? Because it was made that way. So we are made for Sabbath. And we're made that way by a Heavenly Father. And whatever our personality is, there's a part of us that is renewed only in quietness. So I, 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 I guess I'm starting off with a bit of an apology here this morning. I, I, I don't want this to come across strong. But at the same time, if we are in need, we need to hear the truth. Nothing changes until it becomes what it is. I remember going to the cardiologist 20 years ago. I was, I just felt like I didn't have the energy I needed. And, you know, I saw the cardiologist, saw the a family doctor, he sent me to the cardiologist. I thought, well, you know, maybe, you know, some pills. And I'm sitting in this room with this cardiologist, and he says to me, you have a bicuspid aortic valve. 
And the question is not whether you will have valve replacement surgery, but when. That's the first thing he said to me. Then he said, I have just made you uninsurable. So be sure to keep your medical payments up. Now, I didn't want to hear that. I'm sitting in this room. There's no windows anywhere. There's just a door and there's a doctor. I hardly know him. And he's telling me that I'm going to have open heart surgery. I didn't want to hear that. But I needed to hear it. And five years later, I got a new heart valve, and I've had it for 15 years. And, you know, you can hear it. Hannah says, that thing makes me nervous. <laughs> so I said to her, you better be nervous if you don't hear it. <laughs> I can expect that at some point in my Christian walk, I will come to long to go deeper with God. It happens to Christians. Christianity light doesn't do it. And we find ourselves with a hunger to go deeper with God. There may be unwanted behaviors I have been unable to change. In my case, it was anger. I had this anger within me. And I came to the point of saying, God, if you don't change me, I'm going to erupt again. I don't have control over this thing. If the circumstances are right and the emotions are right, I'm going to release anger. And as I release that anger, I'm going to dishonor other people. I'm going to dishonor you. And I'm going to dishonor myself. Oh, God, I have known you for decades. I have served you for decades. But there's a part of me that's unformed, that's unchristlike. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Do a new work. And in response to that, I took a day, cleared my schedule, went into my study, and said, God, here I am. Do with me what only you can do. That was the beginning of my journey with solitude. There may be unwanted behaviors I have been unable to change, but I will need help to know how to proceed. Solitude and silence offer a powerful and time-tested next step. I recommend solitude and silence for those who are hungry for God. In solitude and silence, I withdraw for a period of time from social contact, physical movement, and sound except perhaps the gentle sounds of nature. I present my time and myself to God as a love offering to him. So that's the essence of what we're talking about here. We say, God, I give you my time. Father, you love me, and I want to learn to love you more. So I'm giving my time to you, Father. I'm blocking out everything else. I'm putting you in my schedule. In quietness and stillness, I allow my soul to come to rest and clarity. I ask the Holy Spirit to grace me with insight. I'm back to this brothers and sisters. <laughs> brothers and sisters. Insight. The book of Proverbs says, in all thy getting, get understanding. Wisdom is more precious than gold. And that is literally true. Wisdom is more valuable than wealth. Wisdom. In all thy getting, get wisdom. Wisdom, insight, comes from the Holy Spirit. We ask the Holy Spirit to give me insight. I listen for the healing word that Jesus is always ready to speak, and I obey. Now, solitude and silence have for millennia shaped the lives of our fathers and mothers in the faith. So 
what we're talking about here is not a modern idea. It has been experienced for millennia. It has been the context in which lives have been transformed for millennia. Just a few examples. Moses. God placed the Moses in the desert for 40 years. Why was he in the desert for 40 years? Because 39 years wasn't long enough <laughs> for what God wanted to do in him. God took Moses, formed in the household and court of Pharaoh, and transformed him into a Moses shaped in hiddenness in the presence of God. God was preparing Moses to become one of the most influential leaders in all of history. Now just a note here. We may feel that being still before God is a waste of time. There is so much we must accomplish. I haven't got time for the solitude business. I've got all these things I have to do. Life is short. But Judeo-Christian history repeatedly shows that those who have been with God, although accomplishment was not their motivation, have lived exceptionally productive and influential lives. Another example, David. David's desert was the pasture lands where he tended his flocks. During seasons of solitude, God imparted to him the spiritual insight from which the foundations of Judeo-Christian worship sprang. You know, if you, try, if you trace... Judeo-Christian worship back, you'd have to go back at least three millennia to the Psalms. Where did we get those Psalms? Where did those Psalms come from? Was it just that David was a poet? Or did it come from the formation that took place in him in extended times of quietness in the pasture lands? And when David faced Goliath, I mean, here is Goliath challenging the armies of Israel. Here the whole armies of Israel standing there. They're all afraid. Saul's afraid. The generals are afraid. The whole army's afraid. And here David, he's a youth, and he comes and says, Look, I'm not afraid of that giant. I was alone with the sheep, and a lion came, and I could overcome the lion by God's grace. A bear came, and I could overcome the bear. And this giant will be like them. He has defied the armies of Israel. And David slew the giant. How did he have the capacity to do that? He had been with God. He had been with God. What was the essence of David's success? He had been with God. Elijah. I just love the story of Elijah. You know, the first time we see Elijah, 1 Kings 17, Elijah the Tishbite all of a sudden appears on the scene. And he says, Tell Ahab that there will not be dew nor rain on the earth except by my word. Where did this guy, Elijah, come from? And when we read the story of Ahab, we see that during the times of Ahab, Israel was in the most intensive season of its idolatry and apostasy. Ahab, this incredibly ungodly king, and how did God respond? He raised up Elijah. Elijah had no money, no social standing, no religious standing, no organizational backing, no website. <laughs> All he had was the hand of God upon him. And God used Elijah to turn Israel back from her apostasy. John the Baptist. God took this anointed servant and placed him in obscurity. I mean, John the Baptist, when, when Gabriel came to announce the birth of John the Baptist, he said, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Mary came into Elizabeth's presence and the child within Elizabeth leaped. And yet when John the Baptist was born, 
God put him in quietness out in the desert. And he was out in the desert until the time of his appearing in Israel had come, formed in stillness. Jesus, like John, Jesus spent his formative years away from the limelight. Thirty years. I wish you could hear my dear friend and colleague Amy Cogdell talk about Mary and Jesus. I mean, when she got through teaching on Mary, I was sitting in my chair just with a bundle of tears, weeping. Here's Jesus. Jesus knows who he is. Mary knows who he is. He gets to be 12. He gets to be 15. He gets to be 20. Mary's thinking, when is he going to make it known? He gets to be 25. He doesn't do anything. He's in quietness. Mary's thinking, when is he going to make it known? He gets to be 28. Still in obscurity. Nobody knows who he is. Mary knows who he is. He knows who he is. But nobody else knows who he is. And then there's the marriage in Cana. Mary says to Jesus, they don't have any wine. And then she says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And Jesus performs his first miracle. Thirty years in obscurity. Afterwards, he regularly retreated. If you follow the movements of Jesus, he regularly retreated into solitude, emerged from ministry, and then retreated again. The Son of God learned obedience. He learned obedience. Paul, after this Hebrew of the Hebrews was confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus, he had much inner healing and reformation work to go through. Just imagine, here's Paul. You know, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. According to the law, blameless, persecuting the church. On the road to Damascus to persecute the followers of Christ. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him. And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now, who was Paul persecuting? He was persecuting the church. But Jesus said, Paul, you are persecuting me. There's a lot of ecclesiology in that. We won't get that. That's a target. That's another, another, another talk. Paul had a lot to work through. Where did he work through? In the desert of Arabia. In stillness. Later, removed from his usual activities by imprisonment, he undertook the most fruitful activity of his life. Writing. You can make the case that Paul's most productive ministry was from prison. I hope it doesn't take that for me to learn whatever it is God wants me to learn. Lord, have mercy on me. Anthony of Egypt. During the 3rd and 4th centuries, the church in the Roman Empire was increasingly pressured by a violent and hedonistic culture, one very much like our own. Are we aware that we live in a hedonistic culture? Are we aware that we live in a violent culture? Are we aware of that? We live in a violent culture. And much of the violence in that culture, it comes from speech. Violent speech. Read the Psalms. How often speech is like arrows, like sword. That's, we're, we're, we're submerged to that on a daily basis. That's our culture. That was Anthony and the Desert Fathers' culture. 
Anthony and those with him withdrew into the solitude of the deserts in Egypt, Syria, and Palestine, refusing to allow the culture to form them. So this is a key question for all of us. What am I going to allow to form me? Am I going to allow the culture to form me? I'm living in the midst of the culture. It's going to form me. Am I going to allow it to form me? Or am I going to allow God to form me? Am I going to be formed by the culture? Or am I going to be formed in the presence of God? In stillness, they sought intimacy with God and insight into his ways. And as with John the Baptist, crowds flocked to the desert to receive spiritual wisdom from Anthony and the desert fathers and mothers. In fact, Anthony kept moving deeper into the desert because all these people were coming out looking for wisdom. Reminds me of John the Baptist. Anthony and the Desert Fathers, they weren't trying to do anything. They weren't trying to be known to history. They, weren't to, they didn't have a strategic plan to start a new ministry. They were seeking God. But crowds of people were following them into the desert. And out of this came monasticism. Their influence gave birth to monasticism, one of the most transforming movements of Christian history. Anthony and his companions are heirs to the apostolic legacy of John. Now what we're talking about here is the apostolic legacy of John. You see, Paul's apostolic legacy is a very different legacy than that of John. Paul, do, activity, da-da-da-da, John, the apostle who leaned on Jesus' breast. And it is generally accepted that it was the apostleship of John that gave birth to the desert fathers and mothers and hence gave birth to monasticism. In the Council of Whitby, 664, it was acknowledged by leaders in the Celtic church that their spiritual father was John. He who leans on Jesus' breast Hears the heart of God. In what ways are solitude and silence so powerful? They assist me in distancing myself from the influences of the intensity of activity and noise all around me. Our culture preaches a gospel of doing and achieving. Have you, have you heard that gospel? The gospel of doing and the gospel of achieving. These, without the counterbalancing capacity to be quiet before God, war against the soul. Compulsive busyness is a primary cause of inner unhealthiness. You know, we have one more time together next week. And I've been asking the Lord what should be our subject next week. And at this point, I'm feeling that our subject next week should be inner healing. We need confirmation of that, but I'm just feeling that. And, and, and <clears throat> inner healing brings us into this issue of compulsivity and addiction. Compulsive busyness is a primary cause for inner unhealthiness. Solitude and silence, point number two, offer me entry into the healing silences of God. Solitude and silence position me to hear my Father say to me, I love you. Hearing this from him is foundational to my inner healing. My compulsivities are energized by a search to meet my deep need to be loved. Where does all the compulsivity come from? Where does all the busyness come from? At the very core of who we are, there is a primal need to be loved. 
We are created that way, to be continually in the presence of our Father, where we continually experience his love for us. But we have been separated from the presence of our Father. And so this profound need to be loved. And if we are sensitive and listen, all around us, there are people crying out, love me, love me, love me. That need is too great. In the end, of course we can, I'm not, we want to be loving. We want to reach out to the needs of those around us. But in the end, the need is too great. My need is too great. Only God can meet that need. And to be in a place to hear God say, George, I love you. Psalm 62, 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. My soul waits in silence for God alone. Point number three. Solitude and silence give my body the rest that it needs. And this, in turn, increases my ability to hear God. Only God knows what percentage of the physical illness around us is due to the stresses disobedience inflicts on the body. The soul is disordered, and the body is used in unhealthy ways in attempts to relieve the inner pain. Now, understand me, I've just told you about my, you know, my bicuspid aortic valve. So I'm not saying here that all sickness is, comes from sin. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying there is a strong relationship between the soul and the body. And when the soul is in disorder, that result will be confusion in the life. And in order to address the confusion and the pain that comes from a disordered soul, we can do things with our body that are in the end very unhealthy and harmful to the body. Only God knows what of, to what of degree that's happening. But I think we see it in the headlines in the newspaper virtually every day. God worked for six days. Then he rested. He told us to do likewise. Our body needs rest. Our body needs work. Our body needs rest. As we give our body rest, the rest that it needs, we heighten our capacity to hear God. We can't hear God well if we're nodding off to sleep. So if we're trying to hear God and we're nodding off to sleep, the answer is go to bed and get a good night's sleep. And then after a good night's sleep, Spend some time with God. See what happens. Uh, solitude and silence, point four. Create space for insightful meditation on the scriptures. This in turn yields godly wisdom. And deeper insight into myself. Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I do it? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I had to ask myself that question with my anger. Why do I do it? I don't want to do it. But it just raises up within me. See, it was an addiction. It was an addiction. I wasn't in control of it. Why do I do the things that I do? And we go back to the Dallas Willard quotation that we had in the second session. At any given point in my life, what is determining what I do is a function of my soul, the condition of my soul. Why do I do the things I do? I live from my depths, much of which I am not in touch with and do not understand. But this can change. Point number five. Solitude and silence give opportunity to listen for what God wants to say to me. One cause of my difficulty in hearing God is my daily business keeps me distracted. It drowns out his voice. 
God waits for me to make the necessary choices to come present to him. God is waiting for me. God is waiting for you. God wants to be with you. He wants to be with me. He's waiting for us. God has been waiting for me for decades. Why has it taken me so long? Why am I still so relatively numb and blocked out to the voice of God? I hope some of you young people don't take as long as I did. Don't take as long as I did. Life is in the presence of God. Be with Him. Learn from Him. Be transformed into His likeness. God is waiting for you. 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 Here's another achtung. Be careful. We're not speaking here about introspection. This is really important when it comes to inner healing. Really important. In introspection. What is introspection? What do you mean by that, George? Well, in introspection, my focus is on me. I'm trying to understand myself by looking at myself. This is a rabbit trail to nowhere. It is pervasive in a narcissistic, self-centered culture. And here's, here's, here's the thing. Here's the takeaway. I gain true understanding of myself not by looking at myself, but by looking at God. And listening to what he's saying. Then I obey. I will never understand myself by looking at myself. And in the end, I will never understand myself by asking somebody else. Now, other people can be helpful. But there are things I need to hear that are so sensitive. I can only hear them from my father. I gain understanding of myself by looking at God, by being with God, by listening for what he would say to me. And when I hear him reveal to me the insight that I need to have, then I obey. I obey. That solidifies it. Six, solitude and silence foster inner clarity. Now this is a picture and I find very helpful. If you were walking in the woods and you came across a spring, spring of water, you look down in it, there's a hole in the ground, there's a spring, the water's clear. And you were to take a stick and stir up the water. The water would become muddy. Mud, leaves, other objects. The water is clouded. You say, oh dear, I didn't mean to do that. I'd like to see the water clear again. Well, that's going to take time. But if I wait long enough, the mud and the sticks and the other objects will settle to the bottom and gradually the water will once again be clear. Now that's what our soul is like. All this activity, all this noise that bombards the soul and because life is the way it is, when I'm into the day, I've got to focus on all the balls that are coming at me. That's normal. That's natural. But that doesn't leave my soul in clarity. So in solitude and silence, my soul gets an opportunity to return to clarity. All that mud, all those sticks, all that begins to settle. It can settle and my soul can come to clarity. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And then number seven, solitude and silence are the answer to loneliness. Now, some people are a little bit afraid of this. In fact, I find this, this whole subject is not easy for us. I, I understand that. I respect that. And there can be the concern, you know, of being lonely. You know, what am I going to do if I'm alone? What shall I do? Don't know what to do. 
But you see, it's in solitude that we experience that we're never alone. We're never alone. But solitude and silence gives us an opportunity to experience that. Now, we want to talk for a minute in closing about how to spend a day in solitude. Now, a day might be way too long. You might be kind of like me when that, that cardiologist told me, you know, open-heart surgery. I was wanting a pill. And he was talking to me about open-heart surgery. That wasn't what I wanted. So take this and adapt it to your situation. One good way to start with solitude is 10 minutes. You say, boy, this solitude thing, I don't know. Give yourself 10 minutes sometime. Maybe you're facing a decision. Sit in a chair, be comfortable, 10 minutes. Father, speak to me. I want to hear from you. What do you want to say? You see, the key thing with solitude, as with so many things, is to get started. Because as we start, and we begin to experience the presence of God, we want more, we want more, we want more, we want more. And all of a sudden, it gets to the point, this is not some kind of discipline at all. This is something we are longing for, we're looking forward to. Don't start, start small. But we're talking about a day. In the biblical view, a day begins at sundown. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. In Jewish practice, the Sabbath is ushered in by Friday evening's meal. A helpful practice in shaping an orderly life we use the time following the evening meal and before going to bed to prepare for the next day. Now, I know that some of us, I mean, I'm thinking now back when I was in my 20s, I was in India. I mean, we worked, I worked until 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. Got up at 6. Can't believe I did that. But, um, so, again, we have to adjust this for our own personal situation. But the time between the evening meal and going to bed, somewhere in there, is a helpful time to plan the next day. And I think it's helpful in thinking about a day of solitude to begin after the evening meal, the day before. Number two, we go to bed early. And we sleep until we are rested. Our body and soul are deeply intertwined. A rested body plays an important role in being able to come present to God and hear him accurately. Now, point number three is another, I think, really important point. We normally awake in a condition of solitude and silence. Now, that's not true if our sleep has been disturbed, of course. But... Sleep, rest, is a beautiful, beautiful gift from God. Rest is for our body. Rest is also for our soul. So when we wake up in the morning, our soul is in solitude. When we wake up in the morning, the, the dirt and the twigs and the objects have settled to the bottom and the water is clear. And what we want to do in a day of solitude is preserve that state. Point number four, we select a predetermined place and prepare it. Having a day of solitude, we need a place. And ideally, it's a place we love to be. We love to be in that place. If possible, we move from getting up to breakfast, to this place, with minimum interruption. We look for somewhere away from intrusive noises. We enjoy being there. 
An extra cup of coffee or a snack for later on might be helpful. We enjoy it. This is, this is wonderful. This is a gift. So is there a way for us to get up and move to whatever we need to do, whatever we need to do, and move into a place without disrupting the solitude with which our soul has awoken? Point number five, solitude and nature go well together. Now, some people love to have solitude in nature, and it's a wonderful idea. But we're different. Hannah is a nature person. When Hannah and I go walking, where we go, by the way, if anybody's looking for a place to get away, we know this monastery in southeastern Arizona near Sonoita. Wow. Those nuns are alive in the Lord, and they, they pray for us. And we have friends coming from Berlin that are coming here for the gathering in January. They've already booked time at Santa Rita Abbey. They've been there before. They are free church people. But they're going to this abbey to be quiet. I mean, it's the high desert. The cell phone doesn't work. There's no internet connection. It's just the high desert. Now, when we go there and we go for a walk, my intention is exercise. (laughs) Hannah's intention is to connect with nature. And she connects with nature. So ultimately, we have to divide. (laughs) But, But nature... So... If, 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 if nature works for you, that's wonderful. Find a place in nature. Extended times in nature are restful and healing. Nature is not rebelling against the rule of its creator. Have you ever thought about why nature is so restoring? In nature, we're not in the midst of rebellion. The, the trees aren't rebelling against the God who created them. Or the grasses, or the deer or the birds, or the snakes. (laughs) Point number six, there are two movements in solitude and silence, and in disciplines for the spirit in general. And two movements. The first movement is an emptying. See, we need to be emptied. And the second movement is a filling. We need to be emptied. We need to be filled. And so the thought comes, what do we do in solitude? Well, the first thing we do is nothing. I remember a pastor from New York State. I was in an oversight relationship with this church, and this particular pastor was in a time of transition. And so he wanted to come out and spend some extended time. And so I arranged for him to have solitude. And when we were talking about it, he... (laughs) Wait a minute, George, before you start talking about it, he got out his uh, notebook and, and he, he wanted to take notes because he was really concerned that he'd do it wrong. Now, you can't do it wrong. It's about being with your father. So you can't, don't worry about doing it wrong. In solitude, we begin by doing nothing. And that in itself it takes practice. Because when we first go into solitude, we think all the things we need to do. So this is, part of the, this is part of the practice. We leave all that aside. Now, if you find that when you go into solitude, you're always saying, got to do this, got to do it, take a pencil, paper, just write it down. Everything, I, well, I need to do that, and you write it down. Put it aside. So, so we start off in solitude by doing nothing. It's, 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 it's an emptying, a, a process of emptying. We fast from phone, email, and internet. Once we're checking email or phone messages, we are no longer in solitude. So what will happen to me if I don't check my email for a whole day or for some hours? The answer is, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You will come through this. Or what happens if I don't use my phone for a whole day? You'll be fine. But especially during periods of taking in, worship music can be beneficial. 
We don't bring work to do with us. Time set apart for solitude is not for working on our to-do list. There will be other times for that. Once we are doing work, we are no longer in solitude. Okay, number ten. Once we notice the sediments that cloud our soul beginning to settle and the water becoming clear again, the time may be coming to take in to receive. So I find often after a couple of hours I'm ready to take in. And one of my favorite ways of taking in is study. And so the time comes when my soul wants to study it, wants input. So in a day of solitude, as I learn how to be quiet, listen to my father. Oh, another thing that we haven't put in here, but another thing that's really, I think, really helpful is a prayer journal. You know, I remember when I first started hearing God speak to me. Or I thought I was hearing God speak to me. And I wanted to write it down. And then I thought, oh, gee, I can't write this down because, you know, that would be like writing scripture. You know, I had this theological confusion. And the Lord finally got through to me. You know, George, it's okay. You know, you're not writing scripture. It's just your own personal prayer journal. Just write down what you're hearing. You don't have to publish it. So I started writing down things that I was hearing God say to me, or I, I felt like I was hearing God say to me. And these things um, broke down into two major categories. And the first category was awesome affirmation. George, I love you. George, I have called you. George, I have made you this. George, I have made you that. Just awesome words of affirmation. The second category was correction. George, boom. I mean, he was saying things to me that if Hannah had said that... <laughs> correction. And the correction didn't come with guilt. It came with healing. You know, the cut of a surgeon, you hope, is healing. We've all had that experience. The cut of a surgeon is healing. The Lord is the great surgeon. The surgeon of the soul. And he does surgery in the context of joy and affirmation. So all this is about taking in. So the disciplines that Ryan was talking to us about next week all come in here. In one very real way, solitude creates this big, arena for the exercise of the other practices. Verse point 11, we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. We rely upon him. There's no right or wrong way. We just make ourselves available to God. Now, um, the last thing that we have here is what role is solitude and silence to have in our life rhythms? I think it's incredibly helpful to ask ourselves on a daily basis, what role should solitude play on a daily basis? Then on a weekly basis, is there a weekly practice that I should enter into? Don't be heroic. Start small. If a day just feels way too much, what about 10 minutes or 15 minutes? Start small and let it grow naturally. So daily practice, weekly practice. There might be monthly practice. There might be quarterly practice. There might be annual practice. Hannah and I have daily practice, weekly practice, and quarterly practice. But our lives are all unique. So what works for you? And again, this is not... <clears throat> something that makes us more acceptable to God. 
But it's a practice that opens us up to the healing presence of our Father. So, brothers and sisters, who wants to go deep with God? Maturing toward wholeness in the inner life. Don't raise your hand. Does anybody want to grow up? You say, well, I'm already 30. You can be 30 and in some areas not yet grown up. Or you say, I'm 40, so you can be 40. Does anybody want to grow up? Does anybody want to move into maturity in the things of God? Does anybody want to experience true wholeness that is formed within us in the presence of God? As we mature into wholeness, we become channels for God's wholeness to other people. And as we grow together in wholeness, this parish can become and will become a healing community for a lost and broken world. Let's pray together. Before we close, just take a minute. What do you hear the Lord saying to you? And what would you like to say to him? Lord Jesus, we come to you in our great need. Lord, our need is great. Your love and your ability to meet that need is greater. Lord Jesus, mature us toward wholeness. Form us in your likeness, Lord that we might know the fullness of your salvation. Thank you for your great love. We pray our Father in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, um, just one thing before we go. The notes from previous sessions are up here. If some of you missed those and would like to get those, they're up here. They're also on the website along with the recordings. God bless you.